Weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining us. Those of you who live or have lived in Florida know how difficult it is to describe the state in simple terms. Geographically, it's a complicated place with a very diversified population. To find the true essence of Florida, you must be willing to travel its back roads, coastal regions, and swamps to immerse yourself deep within its communities. And that's just what our guest Tyler Gillespie did. Tyler is a fifth-generation Floridian, poet, and award-winning journalist. In his latest book, The Thing About Florida, Gillespie provides a deep, personal look into the spirit of Florida. In his search, he journeys to unexpected places, such as halfway houses, gator pits, rattlesnake rooms, and clothing-optional campgrounds, where he meets eclectic and unconventional Floridians. He interviews storm chasers, Civil War reenactors, cattle ranchers, drag queens, python hunters, and pet smugglers to explore our misunderstood state. I called out Tyler for having a love-hate relationship with the state, like most of us natives. But at one point, he went so far as to deny he was even from Florida. So I asked him to explain his reasoning for this. Because people would always ask me like, oh, Florida's so weird and want to talk to me about, you know, the weird Floridaness. So that was kind of annoying. And I just thought it was more glamorous to be from a big city than from the Sunshine State, right? So, uh, you know, at a, a few times I would, I would go as far as to say I was from a different place. <laughs> that, that was usually that was when I was in college, so you know, a long time ago. So why don't we preface with where exactly you are from? Because I'm more south. I'm like Miami. You know what I mean? It's right. it's it's a little bit of a different. I mean, one thing that it does say in this book is Florida is basically a a state of states because wherever you go, it's completely different. So let's explain where you're from. So I'm from the Tampa Bay area, and I always tell people that I'm from. Largo, which is near Clearwater Beach, because not folks aren't always familiar with where Largo is, or they think it's Key Largo, you know, down in the Keys. So I'm from Largo, which is near Clearwater Beach, which is near St. Petersburg, which is near Tampa, which is two hours <laughs> south of Orlando, basically. Wow. Okay. So then you you decide to move away after college, right? I did. You directly. went to. Chicago? No? Yes, I did. I went mean? from the Sunshine State to the Windy City and, you know, saw snow. <laughs> and you didn't like it? I mean, I don't know. I, I don't like snow. <laughs> right. I mean, Chicago snow is a lot different. It's not the pretty snow that you, you know, I'd see in like a Hallmark movie or something. It was very much like Lake Michigan is trying to kill you kind of snow. Um <laughs> So I love Chicago. I love it so, so much. The cold, the, the, my bones were not necessarily made for that, but I love the city. Yeah, my bones aren't made for that either. So then you decide to come back. Did it take you moving away to appreciate where you came from? Definitely. I mean, when I was in Chicago, I had friends from Florida there, but really when I moved to New Orleans, that's when I really started to think about Florida's place and its 
being interesting and it, it having all these things because even new in new orleans people were asking me like oh florida's so weird and new orleans which is has its own interesting history i'm like well even here you know we're you know nearby you and you're asking me about alligators in florida you know so that made me realize and appreciated history in its like position but yeah i definitely started to appreciate florida's weather when i lived in chicago like near almost immediately <laughs> yeah well i mean it is one of the big drawing points that brings people here what actually led you to like write this book and get into like the spirit of Florida. It was in New Orleans and I have this distinct memory. I went there for to get my MFA in creative writing at the University of New Orleans. And we were sitting in this dive bar at, you know, with the other new graduate students. And I had a woman from Texas there and we were talking about where we're from. And, you know, she, she said, oh, Texas has its own kind of reputation. And she really owned it in a way that mm-hmm. I that inspired me to be like, oh, okay, you know, maybe I should lean into the Florida instead of leaning away from it. So that's I have a distinct memory of that kind of shifting how I thought about it in terms of writing and wanting to write about it. In this book, you travel to different places to get really to the nitty gritty of the story and the place and its people. Can you briefly explain the geographical range that you covered to seek out these stories? So I started with the Tampa Bay area. You know, the first chapter that I wrote was about Florida Man and the person who I was connected with. She was from Pinellas County, which is where, you know, I'm from. And she had lived in the area and then she had moved down to South Florida, the Fort Lauderdale area. That was the first place that I went. I started with home, but then the first place I actually traveled to was to South Florida. So I spent a lot of time down there. And then for a lot of the pieces, or for a few of the pieces, I should say, I'm talking about um, invasive species. So I'm in the Everglades. And then so also living in Orlando. So a lot of it covers mostly from, I would say, midway down the state. I didn't get to cover as much of the northern part of the state as uh, I did with the central and and south, but I still touch on different topics about North Florida as well, specifically when I'm thinking about when I talk to the Civil War reenactors. Now, you weren't just an observer. You actually participated in these stories. Explain some of the things that you did. So one of the things that I did was a, a lot of the way the story started was me thinking about things that I either thought were misunderstood about the state or things that scared me. And one of the things that scared me about the state is thinking about the pythons, because uh, I was seeing these headlines about, you know, the pythons. But to understand, you know, what was happening, I wanted to go out with these snake hunters because they had the Great Python Challenge, which I thought was another interesting kind of development in the eradication, but also the economics of these snakes. And so I, I went down to the Everglades and I, I went out with some snake hunters who were participating in the challenge. So that that was something. And, you know, writing about it, I really I was of two minds. Like, I hoped they didn't find a snake because then <laughs> what am I going to do? You know, right. but as the writer, I'm like, I really hope they do because where will this story kind of go? But that's also part of it is it's really hard to find these snakes. Obviously, they're they're great at camouflaging themselves and they're they're not as easy to find as these headlines would make you think that you just pop up anywhere and you're going to see them. So that's something that I did. And then another thing that I, I would probably think about was um, with the Civil War reenactors, I, I didn't necessarily participate in the reenactment because logistically, but also just thinking about what that would mean for me to 
participate in, in that activity. Right. But that, that was definitely an interesting moment where I was embedded in what they were doing. I have to say, you know, going into the Civil War reenactors, that was kind of a little eye opener for me. Like I never really gave it much thought. The way you tell the story being like there and immersed in it, it made me realize that there's like this whole dedicated and passionate group of people that spend their lives and and <laughs> a small fortune creating yeah. these living history lessons. And they're so serious about the historical accuracies. Yes. So right. I, I, it just, it made me see that, like, I never, I guess I chose never really to look deep at it, but your writing made me look deep at it. And I'm like, wow, there's multiple layers here. Oh, Did I was just, add yeah, I just found it so fascinating as well. And, you know, um, a lot of the folks were Floridians, fifth generations and more Floridians, right? So a lot of the times they would be doing this to connect to their you know, their ancestors. And, and so I, I kind of saw it as like, they're doing something similar as me, like I'm writing about this, they're actually, you know, reenacting and thinking about the po political like aspect of it and the historical aspect of it. So that was in the Tampa Bay area as well. It's called the Brooksville Raid. And so yeah. I think about it in the, in terms of Tampa Bay area, but you know, that's a funny yeah. thing about Floridians too, though, is we, I, we all have our own sense of geography, I feel, and how to explain where something is, I think. Also in this book, what I really love is you have so many wonderful characters from cattle ranchers, drag queens, yeah. gator wrestlers, <laughs> reptile smugglers. You tell me your favorite character and I'll tell you mine. Oh, uh, wow. <laughs> so Yeah, my, that's my, probably hard. <laughs> I, yeah, right. I mean, I, I couldn't have written this book without let people letting me into their lives and I respect like telling you know a stranger or someone that your story and especially some of these topics are pretty pretty intense I just really am thankful to everyone who opened up to me I would say some I, I would say a moment that I just sticks out to me is the cattle ranchers because there's a love story in there that I I would like really <laughs> am, I find really endearing and and I think that I really always think about that uh but I think I would say maybe not my favorite, but folks that I think I was, I, I had, a, I think, a surprising connection to that I wasn't expecting, maybe unexpected, because, you know, as an out gay man, I, I had a connection to the LGBTQ community and some of the drag queens and, and the uh, other folks. So, but I didn't have any connection to these ranchers in any kind of way. And yeah. so being able to have these conversations and experiences with them, I just think it was really, I learned a lot from them. And there's also a love story in that chapter. I mean, yeah, you know, so I, I, I do appreciate that. Yeah, that was another eye opener that it's not citrus that's Florida's top agricultural export it's it's cattle it's meat a lot of people think florida oranges and that's so. just a little the connection for the book too right so i didn't even know about the cattle at all really until i was writing about their civil war reenactors and then when i was doing research and finding out that cattle was florida's main contribution to the civil war mm -hmm. and so i i didn't really that's what then led me to want to write about the ranchers about, about that connection so I would hear about something when I was writing one thing, and then that would often lead me to then want to explore something else that I wasn't familiar with. Describe to me one of the cattle ranchers that you interviewed so our listeners get a sense of who you're talking about. I show up to meet with this man, and he's like, this is him in a nutshell. He So um, he had to shoot some wild hogs that morning because the animals will go after some of their cows. 
And, you know, mm-hmm. they're small. So when we think of farming and ranching, we often think about industrial agri- agriculture and the kind of animal abuse and those kind of things. I was looking at small, or not small, I mean, they have, you know, a lot of land, but generational ranchers of Floridians who had been on the land for like seven, eight generations, right? So looking at their operations that aren't this industrial ag, I meet with him and he already had to shoot some, I think it was hog that was trying to attack the cattle. And, you know, you're like, I'm like, okay, he, you know, he's a hunter. But then he tells me, you know, I don't, I'm not a hunter. I don't like to do that. I just had to, because if we don't, they will ruin our land, you know? So I thought that was an interesting, uh, automatically I was meeting something unexpected. Like this person isn't interested in hunting. He just has to do this, you know, to protect the land. And he tells me that he has a steak. He eats his steak every day and he does 300 sit-ups. 300 sit-ups, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and he's, so he's doing all these things and and hard work. And then uh, also what was really I, with every, with all the folks, they would want to take me to eat. They would always want to take me to eat and have conversations over food, which of course I I love, you know, and they care also, I think too, one thing about them that I think more people should probably know is that a lot of these Floridians, they really care about the land and conservation, right? So they have a lot of their land uh, is, is unable to be, like they're not selling it to be developed, right? And so they really care about the land and the quality of what they're doing. And that doesn't speak, obviously, to everyone, just the folks that I was, you know, not to paint too broad of a stroke, but these folks that I was writing about really, really care about the land because they have such a family connection to it. They're also working the land, you know, so just all of these yeah. these things. Let me get back to my favorite character, Oh yeah, which it was it was a type of thing where, you know, I'm reading the book and then I go to my phone and I had to Google and look this person up. <laughs> and that's Walter, a.k.a. the Florida Man Drag yes, Queen. Yes, yeah. Lady Voldemort. I was like just engrossed in in the performance. Can you tell us a little bit about Walter? Right. So there, uh, Walter has this uh, Florida Man is their drag persona. And so Florida Man had gone viral I mean, has gone viral several times, but specifically for this burlesque, you know, number to Lady Voldemort. And so I just found that with everyone that I talk to, and I think obviously with people in general, the story is always more more complex and more interesting than the headline or just the viral performance, right? And so finding out about Walter's art background and, you know, they're they're moving to San Francisco. They did all these things and then kind of reclaimed Florida in a same similar way as I was by mm-hmm. adopting the name Florida Man for their drag persona. Definitely check out those videos. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lady Voldemort performing. They're not necessarily characters in your book, but, you know, we have to give to me. I think we have to give a little shout out to those in your personal life who really had an impact. And that would be, if I say this correctly, Grammel. Yes, your Grammel. Mm-hmm. Grammel. And yes. Jessica, who I yeah. immediately I immediately said is your wingman for life or wingwoman, however you want to classify it, because I feel like she's that friend that you can call for like anything, you yeah. know? Yes. You know, my grandmother, a lot of people who have read the book asked me about her, you know, because she is such a big part of, maybe not the stories, but 
how I kind of got into writing and, and my connection to Florida as well, right? Because she's lived here her whole life in the same, in Largo. She was born in, not to go too deep into her background. She was That's born right. in a building, in the Johnson building, right? Um, <laughs> that is not very far from where we, we lived. And um, she just, she lived in Largo, born and raised. So she's, uh, she, my great grandmother and my mother, like uh, specifically my great grandmother and my grandmother would tell me stories about the, past Florida, right? Like my great grandmother living in a little bit more North Florida and, and, you know, plucking chickens. (laughs) And she's like the sweetest church lady never missed any every Sunday, you know, so they really got my storytelling life and really instilled that into me and my grandmother as well. Just the fact that she and I were reading together. And so yeah, and and then my mom, all of these women, these strong women in my life really influenced how I saw the state. And then yes, Jessica too, strong, strong woman. We've been friends since high school. And she went on the snake hunt with me. Thank, thankfully, because <laughs> I would, I don't know how I would have responded because she was there as a, she got into it and she was like wanting to find a snake where I never got, I'm not going to lie. I never got into it. <laughs> I mean, it did help me. It did help ease my fear of snakes, but I'm not, I'm still respect them and I don't want them near me, but I'm not as terrified as, as I was of them. Cause I was, I couldn't even really be in the same room as them, you know? Yeah. But then after you're in a room with a, a cobra who is like out of the box, uh, you know, you just kind of realize that, okay, well, it could always be worse. You know, I could always be in a big venom room. So once you do that, you learn a few things, I think. What was your takeaway from this book? So I have a couple takeaways. The one, you know, when people ask me kind of like, what do I think is misunderstood about Florida? I would say that I still think that a lot of the times the state is portrayed or thought of as not having a long history or having a complicated history or having any history. It's this fantastic Disney World place that you can move. And that's the thing, like, yes, there is that. And that's great. But there is this history is important. And I didn't learn that history growing up. But we have a really important history. And it's it's important not just to understand the past, but also important to understand the present, right? Because Florida, like you were saying earlier, it's this many things, it still has a lot of diversity in the state. And you know, we throw around the term diversity, but there's a lot of different communities in Florida that are not present in other states in the same kind of way. So I think it's under, important to understand all of all of those factors. And I think my big takeaway from writing the book as well is that I only got to tell, I mean, I I'm, got to tell a few stories and a few things, and I'm grateful and happy the, of the stories that I got to tell, but there are so many more stories out there that need to be told. Um, and which is really cool about the state is it's really, there's a lot of, for, for writers, I mean, we have a, a obviously like a long lineage of great writers in Florida who are writing about these things as well. But just for writers in general, there's a lot of material if you're willing to just not, if you're willing to look past the headline and find out, you know, what happened next kind of thing. Does that mean you'll do a follow up? (laughs) Another book? Uh, (laughs) About this? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I am writing and I am working on another book about Florida right now. And it's more about, I mean, it's all about the LGBTQ communities in Florida and different areas and how they developed through writing and community. 
So it is thinking about, it's more looking at, you know, LGBTQ folk in Florida, but who knows, maybe I will write another book in this style in the future. But I feel like I got to tell the stories that I wanted to tell. And so I feel really Mm -hmm. grateful for the press letting me do that. Well, Tyler, thank you for joining me. I really enjoyed our conversation. And when that next book comes out, you'll have to come back on. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for your questions and for having me on. I had a really good time. That was author Tyler Gillespie talking about his travels and discoveries while exploring our misunderstood state. For more information about Tyler, go to SoFloWeird.com. Don't slither away. Since Tyler shared with us his apprehension with snakes, I thought I'd share an interesting story about snake handling as a religious practice. Snake handling, also called serpent handling, as a religious practice has been around for a hundred years. It is a religious rite observed in a small number of isolated churches, mostly in the United States. The practice began in Appalachia. A typical snake handling religious service is energetic, involving dancing, singing, preaching, and speaking in tongues. The snakes range from rattlesnakes to copperheads and cobras. Church members approach the snakes and pick them up to demonstrate their power over demons. They either raise the serpents in the air and dance or have them crawl over their bodies. Some even claim to drink the venom. If they're bitten, they refuse medical treatment and instead put their faith in God to heal them. A Pentecostal minister, George Went Hensley, is best known for popularizing the practice of snake handling in the southeastern United States. A native of Appalachia, Hensley experienced a religious conversion around 1910. On the basis of his interpretation of Scripture, he came to believe that the New Testament commanded all Christians to handle venomous snakes. He traveled through the Southeast teaching a form of Pentecostalism that emphasized strict personal holiness and frequent contact with these serpents. In 1936, Hensley built a house on the back of a trailer truck and drove to Florida to hold revival services. He reached Tampa, Florida, where he drew over 100 people to a snake handling service. He then traveled to Bartow, where over 700 people attended one of his tent meetings, and he subsequently ministered in Bloomingdale, Florida, before traveling north to Barrow County, Georgia, in late April. During a service in Barrow, a young agricultural worker was bitten by a snake and became ill. Hensley spoke to reporters and claimed that the man was bitten because he was not quite ready for the demonstrations of the power. He predicted that the young man would miraculously recover, but the man died. This was the first death by rattlesnake to occur at one of Hensley's services. He conducted the man's funeral and left the area for fear of prosecution. A local newspaper condemned his conduct. In early July 1955, Hensley was back in northwest Florida and began a series of meetings near Alpha. He conducted the meetings without snakes for three weeks before purchasing a five-foot snake and presenting it to a Sunday afternoon service on July 24th. Several dozen people gathered at an abandoned blacksmith shop for the observance. During the service, Hensley loudly delivered a sermon on the subject of faith. He removed the snake from the lard can in which it was stored wrapped it around his neck, and rubbed it on his face. He walked around the audience while preaching and then returned the snake to the can. As he placed the snake into the can, it bit him on the wrist. 
After a few minutes, Hensley became visibly ill and began experiencing severe pain as his arm began to discolor. He refused medical attention, although he remained in pain and was urged to seek treatment both by congregants and the Calhoun County Sheriff. One eyewitness claimed that Hensley attributed his suffering to the congregation's lack of faith, although his wife Sally stated that she believed it was the will of God. Hensley died early the next morning. Calhoun County Judge Hannah Gaskin ruled his death a suicide. Today, the religious practice of snake handling is outlawed in almost every state except West Virginia. Though you can bet many still observe the practice illegally. Speaking of weird spiritual practices, there's a special town in Florida that is known as the psychic capital of the world and was founded by a spirit. This next story is from Charlie Carlson's book, Weird Florida. The quaint town of Casadega sits just off bustling Interstate 4 in Volusia County, yet it is one of the most peaceful places in central Florida. But what makes Casadega unusual is that every resident is a medium. That's right. Spiritualism is the main industry here, aside from a couple of New Age bookstores, a cafe, a hotel, and a post office. Casadega's history began in 1875 during a late summer seance in Lake Mills, Iowa. It was there that George Colby, a 27-year-old medium, received a message from an Indian spirit named Seneca. Colby said that Seneca instructed him to leave Iowa immediately and make contact with T.D. Giddings, a medium in Eau Wisconsin. The two men were to conduct another seance through which Seneca would commune with them. The two mediums complied with their orders and, while in a trance-like state, were told by Seneca that a congress of spirits had selected Florida for the establishment of a great spiritualist center and that Colby had been chosen to lead in its creation. In a series of sessions that followed, Colby continued receiving directions from his spirit guide Seneca. He was told that the proposed location of this new spiritual center would be near Blue Springs, Florida on high pine hills overlooking a chain of silvery lakes. It wasn't long before Colby and the entire Giddings family were moving to Blue Springs. At first, the group resided in a palmetto hut to await further instructions. Then one night, in the faint of light of a kerosene lamp, they were contacted by Seneca with orders to go east to the outskirts of the village and find the seven hills. This will be the place. The next morning, they left Blue Springs. Near the town of present-day Lake Helen, they found seven pine-colored hills and saw the silvery lakes mentioned by Seneca. Both men agreed that this was the spot where they would build a new spiritualist center. Casadega soon became looked upon as a strange place where the devil's work was done. Backwoods preachers warned their congregations to stay away from Casadega, lest ye be damned. This same feeling against spiritualism exists today, and residents still have hostile encounters with outsiders. We've always had problems at Halloween, remarked Louis Gates, a certified medium and healer. One time they started a rumor that the devil was in the temple because they could see a glowing red candle in the window. What they were talking about was the red exit lights inside the church. Then there are stories about how we've dumped bodies into Spirit Pond, 
Gates says that these stories originate from people's ignorance about spiritualism. If they understood it or could see it, they wouldn't fear it. There's nothing evil about it. And here's another misconception. The Devil's Chair of Casadega. Many of the original Casadega spiritualists are buried about a mile up the road in Lake Helen Cemetery. Each Halloween, guards must be posted at the cemetery to ward off outside pranksters and curiosity seekers looking for goblins. One of the big attractions at the cemetery has always been the sinister devil's chair. According to the stories, if you sit in this big brick chair at midnight, the devil will communicate with you. The Prince of Darkness also enjoys a cold beer once in a while, for we're told that if you place an unopened can of beer on the chair, it will be empty the next morning. He's probably a pretty thirsty fellow after working in all that fire and brimstone. Actually, there are three such brick chairs, so it is a little confusing trying to figure out which is El Diablo's. Weird Florida sat in all of them, but we didn't hear the devil say anything, maybe because we didn't leave him a beer. When it comes to Casadega, Louis Gates is not only a medium, he's a regular historian and folklorist. He laughed as he began telling us the truth behind the legend. There's nothing to it. Kid started that story. The real story goes back to a man who lost his wife. It was a quick death and unexpected. This was back in the 20s. She was buried in the cemetery, and he would walk there each day and sit beside her grave. The man had arthritis real bad in his legs, and the walk was hard on him. He needed something to sit on, so he built that big brick chair so he could rest beside his wife's grave. There are all kinds of stories how if you sit in it, the devil will talk to you. It's just a story. It has nothing to do with the devil. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more strange Florida stories, be sure to visit us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us by searching at SoFloWeird. And please, join our SoFlo Weirdos Facebook group, where we share Florida's dubious tales every week. As a fan of the SoFlo Weird Show, there are many ways you can become involved. Our goal is to create a community of weirdos who celebrate all things strange in the Sunshine State. Soon we'll be launching a membership with exclusive benefits and some really cool events. But for now, here's Michelle to tell you how you can join our team. Are you a super fan and weirdo to the core? Then consider joining our SoFlo Weird Street Team. Get free stickers and represent us on social media with the hashtag SoFloWeirdStreetTeam. Just send us a message on social media or through our website and you'll be on your way to street team status. Like what you hear on this podcast? Then consider giving us a review and please share with your friends. If you wish to support the SoFlo team and our freakish mission to entertain your insatiable appetite for weird stories, then go on our website, pick up some SoFlo swag or buy us a coffee and we'll give you a shout out on the show. Thanks, Michelle. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlo Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson, Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance, and Lisa Pally, publicist for the Miami Book Fair. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody.